Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary, and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business. It's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hi, I'm Sigal Samuel, sitting in today for Sean Illing. A few years ago, I was at a bar in San Francisco having a beer with a bunch of other people. We'd all just come from a conference full of super smart speakers, and our brains were exhausted. The person next to me said something like, thank God for nootropics. I didn't know what that was, but I very soon learned it was a technical term for smart drugs or cognitive enhancers. Pills that supposedly give your brain a boost. Everyone at the table started saying how if there was a pill that could boost their IQ by 30, 40, 50 points, they would take it right there on the spot. I was the only one who said, um, no thanks. And everyone looked at me like I was just deranged. They asked me, why wouldn't you want to be smarter? I pointed out that smarter doesn't necessarily mean happier. And if all of us at the bar just boosted our IQs, it could create pressure for other people to do the same thing, even if they couldn't afford to or didn't want to take those drugs. Fast forward to today, and smart drugs are like child's play compared to what else is out there. Brain-based technologies have proliferated. There's neurofeedback, deep brain stimulation, brain-computer interfaces. And the good news is there are some hopeful signs that these may be able to help treat things like depression or addiction. But there are also uses that sound like they're straight out of dystopian sci-fi. Except they're very much real. And they're already here. I'm Sigal Samuel, and this is The Gray Area. My guest today is Nita Farahani. She's an ethicist, a lawyer, and a philosopher at Duke University. She's also the author of a new book called The Battle for Your Brain, Defending the Right to Think Freely in the Age of Neurotechnology. She points out that consumer products collecting brain data, like the Muse headband for meditation, are already on the market. 
Lots more are on the way. She asks whether that'll lead to a future that's Orwellian or even worse. I mean, even George Orwell wrote in 1984, nothing was your own except the few cubic centimeters inside your skull. But we may be heading for a future where we lose even that. Nita, thanks so much for joining us on the show. It is such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So I'm going to just start by saying the idea that my brain is a private place where I can think my private thoughts is one that I kind of take for granted. (laughs) So I'm hoping you can start by explaining why some people might willingly give up their brain data. And maybe the Muse headband would be a good place to start since it's a pretty non-invasive device that you can go out and buy today if you want to. Yeah, so I, uh, for a long time, have seen all of those quotes like you have, right? Our our mind is safe. At the very least, we have that space of private reprieve. And I don't think that's the case anymore. And I think it's not the case because people already are willingly giving up the data from their brains. And I think that they'll do so much more ubiquitously in the future. So what is this future that I'm talking about and what is the now? Uh, There are already wearable brain sensors that are being integrated into, until now, would have been standalone headsets. So the Muse headband is one that I've had for a long time. It's very sci-fi looking. It's like a little black band that goes across your forehead. It has dry brain sensors or electrodes that are embedded in it. It doesn't require any gel or anything to pick up the electrical activity. And it picks up a little bit of brain activity, not a ton of brain activity, but when you think, when you do anything, when you meditate, neurons are firing in your brain. Those give off tiny electrical discharges, and it rises to the level of your scalp and your skull, where you can pick up some of that brain activity, and it's kind of averaged and measured over your brain. And the Muse headband, which a lot of people use, they use for neurofeedback. What neurofeedback means is that it picks up brain activity. It can detect and be analyzed by software or algorithms that try to detect whether you're in a meditative state or not. And it can give you real-time feedback, and it can be something like birds chirping when you get your stress levels down and your brain activity shows the decreasing stress level. And people are using it, which I think is great. I'm one of those people. It can help with self-reflection, with meditation. But then there are whole communities of people who are also sharing that data with each other. Mm. They're going on to Facebook and then they're uploading their brain data and comparing it just like they would compare, you know, their heart rate or this is what my orange theory workout looks like and, you know, leaderboards of brain activity. And then they don't realize as well that passively a lot of that data is being collected just like any other data that we share willingly or unwittingly, Mm -hmm. like our keystrokes, our searches, our likes, our financial transactions, our GPS information. This is data being captured by companies and being commodified and sold to other companies and to researchers to use for other purposes. And so the people who've already adopted the brain sensors have treated it just like they've treated every other kind of data, which is to unwittingly leave behind that last bastion of freedom, that last space of private reprieve. And the future I see coming, which is already here, there are already these technologies that have arrived, but many, many more shipping this year, this spring, is 
embedding those sensors into multifunctional devices. So the thing that I think has been keeping this industry from really going mainstream is that most people aren't going to go around with a silly-looking headband across their forehead in their everyday lives. But we wear headphones all day long every day. We wear earbuds to take phone calls. We wear smartwatches that have sensors in them. And major tech companies are launching products now that have brain sensors embedded in headphones and the soft cups around them with a bunch of different sensors that pick up and decode brain activity. And Meta has invested a huge amount of money in having a neural interface watch that can be the way in which we operate all the rest of our technology. So it's coming. It's going to be much more widespread, and it's going to be very convenient for people to give up their brain activity. Right. So, I mean, if someone is using the Muse headband, which is collecting signals via EEG, maybe the benefit for the individual is in analyzing how your meditation practice is going or tracking how your attention might drift during the day or other lifestyle improvement type things. But could the tech also help us manage our physical health? Yeah, so we treat our brain health as if it is something that we can ignore. We quantify everything from our cholesterol levels to the steps that we take and the possibility of being able to peer inside of our own brains and quantify what's happening there could enable us to take charge of our mental health and well-being, which I think could actually be incredibly promising. And one of those applications that I'm excited about is the possibility of early detection of seizures. So people with epilepsy, particularly those who are treatment resistant, one of the real challenges of the disease is that you don't get advanced warning and not sufficiently advanced warning. I had a close family friend who passed away from epilepsy, from an epileptic seizure where there was no advanced warning and she was alone at the time. And as a result, when she vomited, there was nobody there to help clear her throat or anything like that. With a simple consumer-based headset, some companies like Epines out of Israel have shown the possibility of detecting an epileptic seizure up to an hour before it happens. And if you're wearing a brain sensor that's part of your earbuds, or they even come in the form of tiny little tattoos that are wearable, like sensors that you can put behind your ear, if you had that all the time on and got a real-time alert, just like people are getting real-time alerts about changes in heart rate activity through their smartwatches, that could be life-saving. That could be the difference between getting to a place of safety or not or taking just-in-time medication that could prevent or you know, altogether treat and mean the person doesn't suffer from that. So I think that's extraordinary. There's so many different applications like that that I talk about in my book because as people think about the Orwellian possibilities of this, many people are like, let's just ban the technology because that sounds horrible, right? Mm -hmm. But it's it's the promise that is leading the developers to develop the technology. And it's the promise that I think is going to lead to the widespread adoption of the technology. In terms of the promise of this technology, you know, so far we've been talking about versions of the technology that are pretty non-invasive, that you can wear as earbuds or as a headset. There's also versions that are a bit more invasive, what we call brain-computer interfaces, or BCI. And I think it's like helpful to think of this in two ways. So there's BCI tech that has systems that read neural activity to sort of decode what the brain is already saying. We'll spell that out a bit in a minute. And that's often with the help of AI processing software. 
And there's also systems that write to the brain, right? So actively giving the brain new inputs to change how it's functioning. And some systems might do both. Tell me about an American patient named Sarah who suffered from intractable depression and how BCI worked for her. Yeah, that's an amazing story. And there's technology that is implanted in the brain. And this brain-computer interface is the kind of technology that I think people are more accustomed to hearing about. So it's the kind of thing that you hear about that Elon Musk is investing in with Neuralink or BlackRock Neurotech is developing versus the wearable technology that we've been talking about, which is also brain-computer interface, but doesn't have the same resolution, doesn't have the same capacities that the implanted technology does. It's also a lot safer and much more accessible to the everyday person. But if you have implanted electric electrodes in the brain, it is possible that those can be both reading and writing. They can both send electrical signals into the brain as well as read the electrical signals and be decoded. And there was a patient by the name of Sarah, that's, you know, code name for the patient, for the patient's privacy, who described her condition as being at the end of the line, as terminal, Mm. that she was suffering from depression, that there was no more life worth living. She had tried every form of conventional treatment from drugs to devices, even you know, shocks to the brain to try to help with her depression and still was suffering from intractable depression. And researchers were able to use implanted electrodes to track which of the signals in her brain were basically firing, what the pattern of electrical activity was when she was suffering the most severe symptoms of depression, and then essentially change that pattern like a pacemaker in the brain so that as those patterns would be firing, they could give electrical stimulation that would change it. And the result for her was literally night and day. She suddenly regained her life, suddenly regained her ability to have a life worth living for her and to experience a normal range of emotions. It didn't, you know, solve all forms of happiness and sadness for her. It didn't change the fact that she experiences a range of emotions, but it did change whether or not she was suffering from untreatable depression. So it sounds like the electricity disrupted the signals that were leading to the most severe symptoms of depression. Is that right? Yeah. It basically changed the pattern of firing in her brain. And, you know, and I should say there's another company called Flow, which is wearable neurotechnology that provides transcranial direct current stimulation. This is similar idea, but less precise. Instead of being implanted deep in the brain and tracing the pattern of activity and then resetting it, um, it's more general by being worn on the outside. But they are using it for treating depression as well with some incredibly promising results. So it's not just wearable neurotechnology that could be transformative for mental illness and for people's well-being. And there's also the whole promise of restoring some amount of independence to people who suffer from brain disorders, right? I heard about some Australian patients with neurodegenerative disorders who have been implanted with a device, and this device enables them to email, text, even shop for groceries using just the power of their minds? Yeah, it's, it's amazing. First of all, how does that work? And, and like, what are the limits of that? So really extraordinary. Um, I think the one that you're referring to is Synchron, 
one of the challenges of implanted neurotechnology is getting the electrodes into the brain. But Synchron is different. They use a catheter to go up through the jugular, basically, to get the device in there and then picks up the signal as it goes from the brain down to the rest of the body because your brain sends signals to all of the rest of your body to tell your hands to move and to type. And even if you've lost the ability to have that communication signal, you may have those neurons firing. You just might not have the ability to then move your hand as a result. You know, I've heard that there's some challenges with the resolution and the signal quality of that particular approach, but it's also been revolutionary for some people who otherwise had um, something like locked-in syndrome. They were unable to communicate through speaking or through using their hands. They were suffering paralysis. And then those signals could be picked up and the patterns when they intend to type or to move around their computer decoded through machine learning algorithms that are trained on what those patterns of activity mean, enabling them to use the device to communicate with a computer to then type and share information with other people. And a different technology, but a report just came out recently about an ALS patient who was able to communicate at a rate of 62 words per minute, which is unbelievable if you think about Stephen Hawking, who at the end of his life, I think, was able to communicate at a rate of 15 words per minute. Wow. And that was with like the best possible technology in the world trained on him. So the advances are coming quickly and really could be transformative for so many people. I want to understand a little bit more about what this tech can and can't read. Mm -hmm. I know that people like Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk have announced that they're building tech to literally read our minds. But to what extent is that just picking up volitional thoughts, intentions, like, I'm going to pick up that can of Pepsi now, as opposed to the kind of thoughts that aren't really about my intention to do things? They're just the thoughts that pass through my mind all the time when I'm going about my day. Yeah. So as people think about these devices, many people ask me, can they literally read my mind? Mm -hmm. And the answer to that is a little bit complex because first, yes, depending on what your mind is, right? So if you think your mind is like the inner monologue you have, the kind of deep self-reflection that you never intend to communicate to anybody else, Right now, I don't know of neurotechnology that picks up or could decode that inner monologue. But if you think about reading your mind as intentionally wanting to communicate, so I think about whole words or sentences and want to type those out, that can be decoded with neurotechnology. And that's part of what we were talking about with these implanted technologies that are doing speech synthesis and are learning how to actually take images and words that you are forming and intending to communicate. And that's not just left-right. Those are whole words and concepts. The brain can also be probed, um, meaning that there's a lot of memory and information that you have in there, and that can be accessed through different ways of just seeing signals in your brain. And then there are whole brain states that can be decoded. Are you paying attention? Are you tired? Are you engaged? Are you bored? Are you happy? Are you sad? You know, what they can do is pretty vast, actually, but also quite limited in some ways, right? Because it can't pick up, like, your your true self of core of inner monologue yet. Right. It sounds like so far it can pick up 
individual words, cold, hot, put me up, down, maybe something like that. Well, maybe more than that, right? I mean, so Mm -hmm. part of what Meta is trying to do is to, um, maybe the most vivid way to think about it is you're typing on a keyboard. So the way you would train one of these devices to understand what the signals going from your brain down to your wrist mean is you would literally type on a keyboard. Like this is what the motor neurons going from my brain down to my wrist look like when I'm typing out an email to Seagal, right? And here's the content of it and it decodes that. And then you might pull back a little bit and instead of literally typing, I would think about it and I would have a virtual keyboard. So I I would type it out, but I wouldn't be on like pounding the keys themselves. And then I would just think about typing it, but I wouldn't move my hands anymore. And as you scale back, you can train the device so that you can think about it, think about typing on a virtual keyboard, and then have that information decoded. Now, that's not just a number or a word. It's literally what I intend to share with you and type. And those are whole words and sentences and ideas. But we're still in the realm of intention, right? That is right. Yeah. Okay. Everything I have described is intentionally communicated speech. But, you know, we can go there, which is there's st- there, there are ways to get it unintentionally communicated brain states or even numbers or ideas or feelings or preferences that are in your brain that are not intentionally communicated speech. Right. So that's actually one area where this seems especially worrisome to me is in the criminal justice system. And in your book, you talk about how police could be using different neurotechnologies for interrogating the brain for crime. I'm wondering if you can tell me a bit about brain fingerprinting technology and some of the different automatic brain responses that happen when we encounter specific stimuli and how those could maybe be used against us in a court of law one day? Not could, are, are, right? I mean, I think that's the thing that is startling to people when they read my book is that I'm not describing some future scenarios. I give concrete example after example after example of technology that has already arrived and is already being used. So brain fingerprinting technology, and let me just put a big caveat on it to begin with. Whether or not it works, we should be worried about it because it is being used. And we should worry about it if it's being used to make bad convictions of people. We should be worried about it that governments are trying to get into our brains at all. And we should be worried about the fact that it does actually work in many instances to get concealed information out of your brain. So what is it? Brain fingerprinting technology is one of a category of what are called evoked response potentials in your brain. So your brain has kind of pre-conscious recognition or signals before you're consciously aware of your intention to speak or your intention to move or your recognition of an image like the murder weapon from a crime scene, your brain registers recognition. And that is 200 to 400 milliseconds before you're even consciously aware of it. And that signal can be picked up by neurotechnology. In this instance, that's called a P300 wave. But there are others. There's the N400, which DARPA and a bunch of other researchers and governments are investing in. But the P300 signal was developed and applied to interrogating criminal suspects by a researcher by the name of Larry Farwell. And 
It was all the rage back when he developed it. And then people had a very hard time replicating it because the art is developing the probe. Like, how do I know that the reason you recognize the murder weapon isn't because it's just like the one that your grandfather gave you as a gift when you were a child as opposed to you saw it at the crime scene? And so trying to make sure that you really develop probes that are unique and that are showing like real signal in your brain can be very difficult to replicate. But... Other researchers have been using it, and then more importantly, he sold a lot of the technology to a company called Brainwave Sciences that had the likes of Michael Flynn and like an ex-KGB spy on the board, and they've been selling that to governments worldwide who are using it to convict people of crimes based on interrogating their brains. There are ways to get at you know, so-called kind of concealed information or recognition or information that is stored in the brain without a person voluntarily conveying that. Yeah, this is the part that's especially disturbing to me because it's not just about my volitional thoughts at that point, my intentions. It's about my memories or silent utterances or even before I'm uttering it to myself. It's sort of pre-conscious, the stuff that I can't help thinking on on some level Well, and I find that really icky when you think about it from a corporate perspective, right? So, I mean, just imagine this, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, Meta sells you the watch and they plan to integrate it with WhatsApp and Facebook and the rest of their suite of social media platforms. And so you're scrolling through your Instagram. um, The watch is picking up your brain activity that is sent from your brain down to your wrist or your earbuds are picking up that activity. And The same company that has the data about what you're looking at on the screen also has the pre-conscious signals and the, you know, volitional signals that you're sending from your brain and can associate all of that information together to have so much more information about you than you would ever want to share with them. So it's not just governments that terrify me. It is the fact that this is data that will be commodified by companies who are also operating the same platforms that we're interacting with and can embed things in those to probe our brains, right? I mean, the idea that like the very environment in which you are interacting can have primes that you're not even aware of to try to see how you react, that's chilling to me. We're already living in a world where data from our brains can be collected, analyzed, and commodified. But are we also living in a world where our brain data can be surveilled without our permission? I'll ask Nita about involuntary neurotech after a short break. Support for The Gray Area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what, exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. 
You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I think one of the more obvious downsides of neurotech is the potential for surveillance. And I think you already see that on view in China to some degree. There's Mm -hmm. train drivers who are required to wear EEG devices to monitor their brain activity. And at least according to some reports, there are certain factories where workers have to wear EEG sensors to monitor their productivity, their emotional state, their mood. Personally, I've, I've always kind of thought that Americans don't even need to have these technologies forced on them because they voluntarily buy into so many of them whenever they're marketed as cool or or convenient. I'm thinking of Facebook and facial recognition, how facial recognition was kind of trialed on us with, oh, look how convenient this tech will just tag your friends' faces in photos. How much do you worry about involuntary versus voluntary use in an American context, which actually worries you more? I think in the American context, people will just unwittingly give up the keys to their brains. Like voluntarily. Yeah. I mean, you see it already, you Mm -hmm. know? Like, oh, isn't that cool? I can walk into an art museum and put on a brain wearable that will tell me which art I love and which art I don't love in order to feed me more art that I love. And I just love the novelty of it. And I, I mean... That's the kind of thing that I'm seeing over and over again. I mean, as I, as I was building the examples for this book, even I was just alarmed, right? And I've been tracking this stuff for a really long time about how willingly people go into the next major phase of surveillance and what I think of as the final phase of surveillance, right? I mean, the, the one place where people always assumed there would be privacy and they don't even think about it. They just put on the headsets and share that data. So I think in the U.S. context, it will likely happen that way. It will also happen in the guise of productivity and wellness, right? Mm-hmm. So here's something you can use to improve your own productivity. Here's something you can use for the company wellness program. And people, you know, do it thinking it's good for them and it helps them and it helps them improve their focus. And they don't even think about what's happening to that data or the fact that the nature of the data is fundamentally different and that the amount of information that they've just voluntarily handed over to their employer or voluntarily handed over to corporations, which can't easily be clawed back in any way, That's, I think, the most likely scenario of what happens in the U.S. In other countries, we're already seeing the more authoritarian uses of it and the mandated uses of it. And, you know, then you have a a different set of really concerning implications from that, like the chilling effect on freedom of thought and, you know, the kind of self-censorship that happens in those kinds of contexts. 
at least in the U.S., we have a Fifth Amendment that protects us from being forced to incriminate ourselves. But you mention in the book that it's possible courts might interpret incriminating evidence from, you know, let's say a suspect's brain in a criminal case as physical evidence, which would make it exempt. Right. And so our brains could be used to incriminate us. That really seems like it would put neurotechnology on a collision course with freedom of thought. Do you think that that huge risk is counterbalanced by the benefits we stand to reap? Well, first, let me take up the Fifth Amendment point for a moment, and then I'll come back to where I come out on it. So that's actually what where I started all of this more than a decade ago. I wrote an article called Incriminating Thoughts, where I really dove into like, oh, maybe some of our existing rights will protect us, and maybe the right against self-incrimination, at least in the criminal context, would protect us against the use of brain data in a criminal courtroom. And what I found was that's altogether unclear because the way that courts have until now interpreted what can and can't be included um, and used against you is there's a whole bunch of information from your body that can be used against you. And that includes functional information, like you can be forced to give a voice exemplar, like a voice sample. You can be forced to write something down, to have a handwriting sample You can be forced to have blood samples that are used against you. And, you know, it's possible that some of this might be interpreted differently, but it's not not clear on the face of it. So the risks are real. The risks are, are, are profound. And the gaps in our existing rights are problematic, deeply problematic. And that's just because we didn't anticipate this. Your mind is now at risk. Your brain is now at risk. So where do I come out on the balance? I'm a little bit of a tech inevitableist. Mm. So I think the idea that you can somehow stop the trains and say like, well, on balance, maybe this isn't better for humanity and therefore we shouldn't introduce it. You know, I just, I don't see that working. I see the technology coming. Now, maybe people will make individual choices and maybe collectively that will happen at scale where people will say, you know what, like my brain is too sacred and the risks are too profound that I'm not willing to do it myself. But you know, in the ways that people unwittingly give up information all the time and the benefits that are promised to them and the ease with which they can interact with other technology, I think that's unlikely. I also think the strategy for a lot of tech companies is to introduce it as the interface to a new category of technology, and that normalizes it. And that's the more chilling possibility is that even if, like, an older generation chooses to reject it, the next generation, their joystick is their brain. And if that's the case, you can't say like, well, on balance, this is worse. So given all of that, given the kind of normalization that I see, given the blindness with which people go into new technologies, but also the significant health benefits, I think we've got to carve out a different approach to it. And it's not like to stop the train and to say, let's ban the tech. I I hear the idea that maybe we can't or don't want to ban the tech wholesale. But I do want to push back a little bit on this idea of tech inevitability, which I don't think we should take for granted necessarily. I think to some degree that strikes me as a myth that the tech world likes to tell itself and to tell all of us. But I do think that history is full of examples of technologies that we have either decided not to build or that we've built but placed very tight restrictions on. Thinking about nuclear weapons, genetic engineering. The way I tend to think of it is more in terms of how can we shape the incentive structure so that 
companies or governments will be less likely to roll out certain technologies. Here's the thing that keeps me from going there. We have an unbelievable burden of neurological disease and mental illness worldwide. Even as our physical health overall improves, our mental health is deteriorating. People's distraction is increasing, their ability to pay attention is decreasing, and depression rates are skyrocketing. I think we need urgently to address that. And part of the reason that we haven't urgently addressed that is because we haven't invested the same and put brain health and wellness on the same level as all of the rest of our physical health. Mm -hmm. And I think empowering people with information in their own hands to be able to take their mental health and well-being and brain health and lifelong brain health into their own hands could be transformational for those trends. And so my hope is to find some way to make that possible because if we could enable human flourishing by giving people the tools to treat their brain health as seriously as they treat the rest of their physical well-being, I think we would be much better off. The dystopian possibilities of this technology are off the charts, but so is the possibility of finally claiming cognitive freedom in the sense of true mental health and well-being. Do you want to just say a quick word about cognitive liberty and what that is, why we need a law to protect that? So overall, I define it as the right to self-determination over our brains and mental experiences, but that means a right from interference and a right to access and change and improve our own brains. And so I see it as both a negative and a positive right. That's maybe why I come out differently than some people who might just say, let's just, let's just tightly regulate this and just ban it. <laughs> so... In terms of a freedom too, there are all kinds of other types of neurotechnology that people could potentially use for cognitive enhancement. This is not just folks who may be suffering from, let's say, a brain disorder, but um, folks who just want to maybe have an edge at work or, or, you know, perform better at some task. What are some kinds of neurotechnology people could use? So... There's neurofeedback that people can use, which is just the process of retraining your brain through wearing a device that is tracking, for example, your focus, and then helps you see that and change your brain activity and response. There's also neurotechnology that gives stimulation to the brain. This comes in the form of something like transcranial direct current stimulation or other forms of electrical stimulation of the brain. And there are consumer-based devices on this. There are do-it-yourself devices that people have been using for a while. And gamers have been using this for a long time, which can speed the rate at which people learn or identify targets or how quickly they're able to navigate through a particular space. And some of them have real safety concerns with them. They haven't been well studied as to, you know, what it means to do that kind of stimulation and the different locations of the stimulation over time. But those are some of the devices in addition to a lot of the different drugs and nootropics and kind of category of cognitive enhancers that have been developing the ability for people to enhance their brains. I think a very obvious kind of question that naturally arises with these sorts of cognitive enhancers is, well, is this cheating, right? Is this, in some sense, gaining an unfair advantage over others who might not have those things? And in, in the book, you say that we shouldn't compare the use of smart drugs or these devices to, you know, let's say steroids in sports, because 
and here I'm, I'm quoting, life isn't a competitive game with winners and losers and spectators on the sidelines. Brain improvement is not zero sum. And I just want to kick the tires on that a little bit. Are, are we sure about that? Because it strikes me as something that, you know, for me, from my position of privilege, maybe that's easy for me to say, but people living in poverty, let's say, might disagree. What if these drugs or devices aren't equally accessible to all? So I want to say that that's a different issue. And let me explain why. There are all kinds of resources that are not equitably distributed across society. And those resources are everything from basic nutrition and healthcare, appropriate shelter, access to education, access to more enhanced education, like tutors. And the question is why we would treat an unequal distribution or access to technology as cheating because somebody has access to a device or a drug that may help to improve their performance, to improve their cognition, to enable them to better study or better concentrate or um, be able to, you know, participate more fully and be more present in a moment. I think if we separate these issues and understand that there's the question of whether or not it is somehow wrongful to enhance one's brain and mental experiences from the question of if we think that they are effective, what do we as a society want to do to invest and make them more equitable, more accessible, more widely available, then I think we kind of have a better normative approach to it. We can decide that it is a good thing for human beings to have access to it and to be able to claim self-determination over their brains. And also a significant problem that we haven't invested sufficiently to bring down the cost of it, to make it more widely available, and to make all of these other aspects that are critical to brain health and flourishing also more widely accessible across the globe. I think on one level, what you're saying makes sense to me. And on another level, it's just the reality that there's always inequity, right? Basically, I think what you're saying kind of cuts both ways. Yes, in theory, it'd be wonderful if we could just make these things equally accessible to everyone. In reality, society doesn't tend to shake out that way. Right, but there isn't a limitation, right? So in, in the zero sum, like mm -hmm. me enhancing my brain and making my brain better doesn't trade off from your ability to do the same. Mm -hmm. Whether or not we adequately have the resources for both of us to do the same is a separate question, but it's not zero sum. We both can have enhanced brains. We both can have better flourishing and better ability to be able to navigate the challenges that face us as humans. It's not that there's a winner and a loser between us. We both can have access to it. It's a question of whether or not we invest in those resources to make that happen. The kind of mind-blowing um, advances that this kind of technology could lead to are so striking that I wonder if it would just really further entrench the inequity we already see in society and kind of, uh, you know, forgive the reference here, but like it would almost be the existing inequity, but on steroids. <laughs> That's one thing I, I worry about, actually, just like really driving that up. But the truth is that nutrition makes a bigger difference. Mm. Access to basic education and food and basic healthcare would make a bigger difference than equitable access to nootropics. But if we can't even get access to those to be equitable, what makes us at all confident that we could get access to neurotech to be equitable? We may not. Mm. My point is not that 
we will achieve it because we haven't achieved equity across any dimension, including the most basic and fundamental ones that are necessary for brain health. My point is that that doesn't make it cheating for some people to have access to it any more than we consider it cheating that a person has better access to food and nutrition and shelter than another person does. And if we do think that it's cheating to have better access to food and shelter and education, then we really need to rethink what we're doing across so many different aspects of society. Well, I actually feel like the bigger question mark around all of this is, even, you know, let's say we're in a world where these technologies are equally accessible to all. I still wonder, should workers actually be potentially forbidden from cognitive enhancements because it creates a norm that others might then feel subjected to? In other words, will the pressure to enhance become coercive so people end up using smart drugs or devices even though they didn't actually want to? I mean, it's a good question. And it's the idea of implicit coercion is one that I take on in the book as well, right? Which is, is there a race to the top or race to the bottom, however you want to think about it? Especially that becomes problematic if we're talking about drugs that are unhealthy, right? Part of the reason that we ban steroids in sports is because we want to protect players in a kind of paternalistic way to say, if there's a pressure for everybody to, you know, have muscles that are unnatural and to have, you know, uh, the ability to process oxygen in unnatural ways, then the, the drive will be so strong that all of the players will have to do it in order to be competitive and that that can have serious health consequences. But I want you to imagine if there aren't health consequences. You know, let's not talk about methamphetamines. Let's talk about drugs that have very clean safety profiles. And then ask the same question of if everybody feels pressure because, everybody else has improved their health and well-being or their cognitive abilities, what's wrong with that world? And if what's wrong with that world is that we feel like we've increased the rat race and made us all feel like we have to be more productive all the time or we have to be you know, more on all the time, then what we're complaining about is the structures and the underlying forces in society, not the drugs. It's not the drugs that create the problem. It's the underlying drive to maximize productivity instead of having the four-day work week. Mm. I think to me, the issue would be who gets to decide what counts as improvement. For me, it all comes back to the same question of, do you have a right to self-determination over your own brain and mental experiences to decide what makes sense for you? So to your question of who gets to decide, I think you get to decide. I think you should be the one who decides whether or not you enhance or you slow it down or you don't do any of those things at all, that it shouldn't be something that's decided by other people. And implicit coercion is something that we face in our everyday lives with every exposure that we have. I don't think that structuring society through government mandates or regulations to decide what coercive pressures we want to maximize and what coercive pressures we don't want to maximize gives people the autonomy to choose for themselves about how to direct their own brains and mental experiences. I think that's putting it in the hands of governments, which, you know, frankly, is for the most part broken, kind of deciding what is best for people's bodies and minds. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it's very, very tricky and to be honest, it was a funny experience for me reading your book because I think of myself as someone who is very pro-individual autonomy. Um, it's provocative. I mean, I, I I say I'm writing against the grain. Totally. And I, I mean, I think there's a really interesting tension here because on the one hand, you're saying that you're writing against the grain. And, and I think there is truth to that. 
And at the same time, I think in a way you're writing very much with the grain in the sense that the dominant mode of thinking, I think you could argue since the Enlightenment, is that the individual is the proper seat of autonomy and decision-making. And you're very much arguing for individual autonomy, which, like I said, I classically think of myself as someone who's very ardently pro that. But I'm also aware, and you write about this in the book, that even people like John Stuart Mill, Kant, even those folks who were really harping on liberty and the individual we're simultaneously acknowledging, okay, we've got to have liberty, but up to the point where it hits upon society's interests and maybe harms others. Right. There's a, a what I think is a, a strange, very strong paternalistic drive when it comes to health in even kind of like mainstream academia and bioethics where people are, for the most part, extremely liberal mm -hmm. and yet very paternalistic over people's health. And I come out differently. I come out believing that giving people autonomy over their brains and mental experiences is critical to striking the right balance between this temptation by corporations and governments to control and get into our brains if we do that, if we say like, okay, we're going to defer it to the government to decide what's best for our brains and mental abilities, I, I don't know why we trust that that will come out right for us. We've got to take one last short break, but when we come back, would cognitive liberty also allow us to get rid of some stuff in our brains? I'll ask Nita if we might soon be able to opt out of painful or traumatic memories. That's coming up. Eurovision is here. This year's contest gets underway this week in Malmö, Sweden. But this year's contest comes with a dose of controversy. I'll give you one guess as to what people are mad about. Yes, correct. It's that. Organizers of the Eurovision Song Contest say they are assessing whether Israel's entry breaks the rules on political neutrality. I think it's a shame. I think there is no way that that Israel should be able to participate in Pro Palestinian protesters are taking to the Swedish streets. More than a thousand Swedish artists, including Robin, have called for an Israel ban. Some European politicians are joining them. Charlie Harding from Switched On Pop joins us this week on Today Explained to help us figure out if Europe can sing its way out of this situation. We've mostly been talking about enhancing the brain, but there is this question about whether cognitive liberty means I should also be allowed to diminish my brain or my mental experiences. And I right away go to eternal sunshine of the spotless mind, right? Of course, yeah. The ability to erase my more painful memories. Yeah. And this is not something I want to be flippant about because trauma is very real and it's a thing that I want to take very Seriously, I'm wondering if you can tell me actually about how neurotech can offer hope for healing traumatic memory or maybe even prevent it from getting established in the brain to begin with. 
Yeah, I write about this um, because it's very personal to me. Um, and I, I think probably that helps to shape my perspective of this. But I've been really fascinated both from, you know, kind of the eternal sunshine of the spotless mind approach to it of kind of selectively erasing memories to the real examples of drugs that are trialed to try to reduce fear memories or neurotechnology, which is tracking the firing of neurons in the same way that we were talking about Sarah earlier with depression, you know, for people who have PTSD and have very vivid recall of traumatic memories and experiences, seeing what those patterns of neural activity are and then helping to retrain the brain so that that doesn't happen over and over again. They don't relive those experiences. Um, and I think it's complicated because on the one hand, I absolutely think people should have self-determination to make the choices to do those things. And on the other hand, sometimes it could be that they render their brains so incapacitated that the burden on society outweighs the interest of the individual in enabling them to make those choices. And so part of the reason why I take the reader through this journey of thinking about enhancement and diminishment is to help us think about self-determination as what I think it is, which is a relative right, a right that's a balance between individual interest and societal interest, and that we're going to have to make hard choices about where we draw those lines as the technology becomes more powerful and the ability to selectively erase or diminish or enhance our brains becomes all the more real over time. In your book, you talk about this specific way that neurotech can potentially be used to process traumatic memory that I found pretty gripping. You describe a process of, you know, sitting inside a scanner and recalling a traumatic memory. Machine learning algorithms map the areas of the brain that that activates. And then the person basically erases those memories through a process of neural feedback. Yeah. Now, I haven't tried this one myself personally. You know, I give the example of um, our daughter, our second daughter, Callista, who died. And our experience of being in the hospital with her and how traumatic that was and and the PTSD that I suffered for years as a result afterwards. And I tried drugs and therapy and um, have not yet tried what you've just described, which is DECNEF, um, and, and would if I had the opportunity to and, and was still suffering from PTSD. But it makes a lot of sense in the same way that you know, when you are most symptomatic of intractable depression, you have a particular pattern of neurons firing in your brain. And then through implicit reactivation of those same pathways, you could rewire the brain by training it over and over again to have a different outcome. Our brains are plastic. Our ability to change them remains throughout our lifetime. And the precision with which you can see the activation patterns and then use that information to rewire it is profound. Now, that's exciting if you think about it in the context of PTSD. Mm -hmm. It's also chilling if you think about it in the pattern of so-called moral enhancement or, you know, the kind of um, Orwellian visions of reprogramming people's brains. I really appreciated you bringing in your personal experience in the book. And I think, honestly, like a lot of readers will be able to relate in some way. And it was really striking to me that you said you haven't tried the DECNEF, that neurotech, but that you would try it if given the chance. Yeah. That set me off really wondering for myself personally. On the one hand, you know, 
This idea of neurotech healing traumatic memory or even preventing it from getting established in the brain to begin with. Yeah. Amazing. Okay. Wow. Great. Sign me up. On the other hand, I was thinking about um, just on a on a personal level, my dad passed away about a year ago. So sorry. Thank you. And in the last year of his life, I was really caring for him. And it was really intense. And I think probably there was some kinds of trauma incurred there. And as a result, the past year has been just like I don't know how else to describe it, but to say like mental anguish, like one of the hardest years of my life. Mm -hmm. And I think if you had asked me a year ago, hey, Sigal, do you want to sign up for this thing that will prevent that anguish? You know, maybe I would have been pretty inclined. Mm -hmm. But a year later, having gone through that suffering and, and that experience, I actually think that there was a lot of growth that thankfully I was able to come out of it with, it makes me think of this concept of post-traumatic growth. Mm-hmm. I know in the book, you write that as a result of your experience, you feel like you came out with more compassion and you feel you're like a stronger ethicist as a result. So I don't think I would have used DECNAF, um, but I but I, I know, I mean, I there is something really important about suffering. Yes, it has been core to the human condition. It helps us to prevail. I mean, so much poetry and music and everything else comes from suffering. I say I would have used it because the trauma echoed for years and I couldn't sleep and it was vivid in ways that I couldn't function. And the PTSD that people suffer, the vividness of it, it's not that you forget I would never want to forget Callista. I would never want to forget what we went through with Callista. But living through it from the emotional power of it to the fear, to the smells, to the echoes of of the sounds in my brain, I did not need it at that level. <laughs> and so if like if Decknef could help turn it down, not erase the memories, but but turn it down so that when I remembered it, I could remember as I do now her with fondness in those periods as periods of just extraordinary difficulty, but not literally relive it. I would do that. I would I would go back and I would I would regain that time to not relive that over and over again. That makes a ton of sense. And there really is such a thing as as too much suffering. Something I really appreciate is the Buddhist teacher Thich Nhat Han, he has a phrase I really like, which is no mud, no lotus, meaning some suffering can be fertile ground for growth. Okay, great. But when he was presented with the question of how much should we suffer, he said, not too much, (laughs) right? Because that that can just be like a landslide that we don't know how to pull ourselves out of. Right. So it feels like there's a balance to be struck. I think that's right. And I I mean, I hope, I hope that people's choices are to not eliminate personal growth and to not eliminate experiencing sadness and suffering. You know, I I talk about in chapter nine of the book, Beyond Human, the kind of transhumanist agenda of, you know, maybe eliminating human suffering. I don't want that for me. I don't think that that's good for humanity. Mm -hmm. I also don't think it's up to me to decide for individuals what suffering they do and don't want to go through. Yeah. 
I, I lay this out to kind of lay out the principle of self-determination, but part of what I'm really inviting the reader to do in this book is to struggle with these dilemmas, right? And I'm providing my perspective. I'm not hiding the ball on where I come out on it, but, you know, it's, you can lay out the principles of mental privacy and self-determination and freedom of thought, and people can reasonably disagree about where to draw the line on each of those. But the process of democratic deliberation is exactly that, people coming to the table, getting informed about the issues, and then deciding for themselves, deciding for themselves where we should draw the lines as a society, as individuals, for themselves. That's the conversation I hope that I provoke, that I inspire for people as they read the book and go through it. Absolutely. And I I would just say you definitely provoked that questioning for me. I, I do want to underline that, you know, treating PTSD or depression is not the same as eliminating suffering. Right. We should absolutely treat things like PTSD or depression. I'm not sure about the quest to eliminate suffering as some people want to do in the transhumanism movement, the movement that's all about using tech to usher in a new phase of human evolution. Yeah. You know, you ask in your book, if your brain had a switch to turn off suffering, would you use it? Um, would you? I wouldn't, no. I wouldn't, but I did. I mean, I, you know, when I encounter the tech, I wonder about it. And I, I mm-hmm. go through that same self-exploration you did, which is like, if I if I could go back and and turn it off, would I? No, um, I wouldn't. But I, I, I would. I would turn it down. I would turn down the volume for, for, for the years that followed. Absolutely. So, you know. A little bit of mud, but not too much mud, as Thich Nhat Hanh might say. Yeah. You know, you have this new book out, but as a lawyer, it sounds like you want to push for maybe recognizing an international human right to cognitive liberty. Do you want to see that added to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, or is that is that feasible or too ambitious? So I, the vision that I have is that something like the Human Rights Committee, which is the committee that oversees the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, can recognize a right to cognitive liberty that doesn't require adding things to the UNDHR. It simply requires a, an opinion that interprets and understands international human rights law to include a right to cognitive liberty. That directs the updating of those three rights, the right to privacy, the right to freedom of thought, and the right to self-determination to reflect that right to cognitive liberty. I think that's all incredibly doable. Human rights law is meant to evolve. I think this is achievable. This isn't some outlandish recommendation of a whole bunch of people coming together, a whole bunch of countries coming together to make this happen. This is, I think, a practical and pragmatic way for us to reset the terms of service with this final frontier that we're broaching of the human experience and privacy and thought. Nita, thank you so much for all your thoughts that you've shared with me. Thank you very much for sharing your brain, but also your heart with me. And I really, really appreciated getting the chance to talk with you. So did I. This was such an enriching conversation for me, and I really appreciate how thoughtfully you engaged with all of these questions. Eric Janikis is our producer. Patrick Boyd and Brandon McFarland engineered this episode. Alex Overington wrote our theme music, and A.M. Hall is the boss. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends. Eventually, you might be able to share it with them by just thinking about it hard enough, but we're not quite there yet, so you still need to send a link to the group chat or whatever. 
And let us know what you think. Drop us a line at thegrayarea at vox.com. I'm Sigal Samuel. I write about the future of consciousness from neuroscience to artificial intelligence on vox.com. Feel free to check me out there. Sean Illing will be back on Thursday with a new episode of The Gray Area. Listen and subscribe. <laughs>